from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where I teach innovation, entrepreneurship, and design. We have a super special show today. Joining me for the full hour is my fellow Launchpad co-host, Rob Connybeer, who just took a three-month sabbatical, and we're going to hear all about it. Uh, Rob is co-founder of Shasta Ventures and a 24-year veteran of the venture capital industry. Rob, thanks for joining me. Carl, thanks for having me. It's good to good to chat with you again. Yeah, so I was just curious. So I was poking around in my email to see when we first met and how long we've been doing this show. So I bet you don't even know the answer to those questions, but I do. So we okay. first met in October of 2010 at the University of Pennsylvania on campus, and I recruited you to be a guest speaker. That's how we got to know each other. So that was uh, 12, 12 years ago. And then, and then we've done this show, if you can imagine, for eight and a half years. And I, I, I estimated that we've had about 1,000 guests. And so I'm going to just declare you the 1,000th guest. And uh, so this is in honor of our 1,000th guest, but we've been doing this a long time. And I think this interview is long overdue. So I think yeah. it should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it's kind of strange when you start talking about things where you realize you're closing in on a decade of doing something, which is you know a pretty damn long time. Yeah, well, that probably brings us to the topic of today's uh, show, which is it was just taking a sabbatical. So I want to before we get into the sabbatical, you, you've had a long and interesting career, but give give us the the two minute biographical sketch coming up to, let's say, winter of 2022. So tell us about, about Rob Connybeer. Oh, yeah. So just quickly on my background, I'm actually a Texan. So if Texas secedes from the union at some point, I should be able to get citizenship just by birth in Texas. But I only lived there for two weeks, Carl, and then moved to Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Saudi Arabia at one point. So moved all over the country and actually lived outside the country at one point. And then was trained as a mechanical engineer, um, both undergrad and grad school, UVA, then Georgia Tech. Uh, worked in the space industry for a couple of years, then went to Wharton, hence the connection. Graduated in 96 and went straight into venture capital out in California and have been in venture capital for about 25 years. Probably the, the biggest news over the last five years for me was moving to Seattle about three years ago. And absolutely love living up here and spending my time in Seattle and spending about half my time out on Orcas Island. And on a personal basis, have five kids aged 16 through 26. And, uh, you know, it's it's having kids that age means that you can actually go and do this sabbatical that that uh, we're about to talk about. Wow, that's a great story. The five kids is possibly your greatest accomplishment. It's hard for me to imagine pulling that off, having only uh, managed to to get two of them into adulthood. Um, so, so Rob, I sent you an email in the spring, and I got a reply that said it was an auto response. It said, "I'm to to a, to the effect of I'm on a three month sabbatical, driving all over Europe. Check back in mid June." So here we are, mid-June, I'm checking back. And I, first of all, I love that, that email. And I wonder if you can just give us the origin story of the sabbatical and then just give us the basic arc of the road trip before we dive in. Sure. Well, the, the, the high-level piece is, as an investor, is, as you know, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of being able to travel, but you have to do it in blocks where you're still able to reach people on email. They can reach you phone calls. You're still taking board calls. You're just still doing different things. You're engaged. So to get away for a couple of days and check out is one thing, but to actually have a big block of time, that would be like a month or two months or three months is something that's almost impossible to do as a venture investor, as a venture capitalist. So I always felt a tinge of jealousy for operators and entrepreneurs because they could start a company and they'd be all in, you know, 80 hours, 90 hours a week for anywhere from three years to 10 years. But at the moment at which they sold the company or left the acquiring company or left the company, they could go and take a year if they wanted to. They could take six months if they wanted to 
and just check out and see the world or pursue a new hobby, et cetera. So that's something that I'd always wanted to do. And I finally got to a point in my life and career where I was able to, you know, between what's happened with COVID, et cetera, to say, hey, um, I just want to take three months and do something, do a trip that I've always wanted to do. And that trip, in my case, something that I've always dreamed about doing is driving around Europe. All right. And uh, give us the arc of the trip. It had some really distinctive features. Yeah. So I think probably the most important statistic with it is 32 countries over 92 days and just shy of 19,000 miles of driving. And I drove all of those miles. And when I started the trip, I was thinking that uh, I'd probably get to about 15 to 20 countries. But as I got started, I, I basically, it's kind of like when you go up to an all-you-can-eat buffet and you look at all the different things that are there and you're like, okay, yeah, of course, I'm going to start with the salad and then I'm going to have some pasta and I'm going to have this and that. So once I got there and I started thinking about, okay, I'm actually here with my own car that I've shipped over here. And how many times am I going to do this in my life? And decided that I wanted to take it as far around Europe as I possibly could. And, you know, from, from driving around the U.S., um, you know, even when I've driven around the U.S., I might go on a long drive, but it'd be like, you know, a 12-hour day or a 14-hour day. But last September, is, as I think you and I have talked about in the past, I took two weeks and drove up to the top of Alaska and back. And I found that to be a really, really compelling experience. And the reason that it was compelling is because when you drive from one place to another, you start to see a lot of things and get a sense for the scale of a place, the people, the, the, the vehicles, the landscapes, et cetera, in ways that you don't understand any other way. So going back to the architecture of the trip, at first it was, I'm going to ship my car over, drive my own car around, and it would be a vehicle for meeting people in these places because it's just weird to have a car with U.S. plates in Europe. And then as I started going from country to country, started thinking, wow, you know, there's just this unique experience to see as much of the totality of the European continent as possible. And that's what I ended up doing. Gee, so my first reaction, Rob, is, ah, I see, this is what a type A venture capitalist does. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, it sounds like a box checking exercise, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, where have you been? Oh, I've been <laughs> in Helsinki, I've been in Stockholm, I've been in Oslo, I've been up to the top of Norway. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so we we can't we can't get much further without talking about the car. And I guess before we even do that, let me point our listeners to your Instagram account because you did a phenomenal job of documenting this trip. And so the Instagram account is at the clutch pedal, the clutch pedal, and that's probably the best place for people to to check to check out the the trip. So you say. I ship my own car over, but there's actually a backstory to that too. So tell us about the car. Yeah, there, there is a, there is a story to the car. And as I was mentioning before, I have five kids. I bought this car 22 years ago, brand new off a lot in the Cal, excuse me, in the San Francisco Bay area and have owned the car for its entire life. And all five of my kids have grown up in the car. So it's a car that I have a deep and personal connection with. And the other thing that I, I like about the car and I find interesting about the car is it's almost like the car is self-actualizing now. It's like becoming the car that it's always been meant to be because I refuse to buy a minivan. I've, I've always refused to own a minivan. Um, I drove one in high school and I just, I said in my life, I never want to own or drive a minivan on a regular basis. So I was completely seduced by the marketing. And you know how the marketing is for these SUVs is basically you're going to take it, you know, you're going to climb these mountains, you're going to drive through these swamps, you're going to go off road. It's this rugged luxury that you can take all these places. And of course, for the first 15, 20 years of the life of the car, that's exactly what it didn't do. Right. You know, it was, it was the car that we would take to go skiing or drop kids off at school or pick kids up at school. Um, so it was really, it was used as a minivan but it had enormous capabilities. As a Toyota Land Cruiser, it's an incredibly reliable vehicle. So I decided to ship it to Europe. And 
that was for a couple of purposes. One is it was like bringing a reminder of family and kids with me to Europe and taking this thing that I have this family connection with around the world was a big part of it, number one. And then number two, what I found from my trip to Alaska is when you show up in a 22-year-old car that has dings and scrapes, and at the same time, it has like two tires hanging off the back, and it has like a big bull bar on front because it's been modified for off-road use and, you know, a big high-lift jack. Um, it's kind of a friendly car. People yeah. look at it. It's not an intimidating car. It's not like driving a big Humvee. It's just like kind of like a goofy, happy-go-lucky uh, car showing up. It's silver. And what I've found is when I drive into a small town or you arrive at a hotel or you arrive at somebody's house, it becomes a point in a conversation because people are interested, like, what the hell are you doing with this car that has ripped up seats and scratches and dents, et cetera, and Washington state plates. So in in a sense, it's almost like my travel companion is the car. And the other thing that I ended up doing on the trip was I started to apply country stickers to the side of the car. So when you take a look at the driver's side door, and if you look at it on Instagram, you'll see how they're lined up and they're kind of lined up like, um, if you remember the Red Baron in World War One, where he would have like um, confirmed kills, he would have the airplanes that were for each of the planes that he shot down. So I started to add these country stickers and like really interesting places that I went like Tunisia. And what ended up happening was I'd show up in some places, people would see those stickers. And when I was in Turkey, um, the, uh, the staff at one of the hotels tracked down a Turkish sticker for me to put on the side of the car. And at first, when I would go through customs going from say, um, going from Greece into Turkey, or I should say, I went from Bulgaria into Turkey, uh, when you don't have anything on the car and all you see are the Washington state plates, people think it's kind of weird. They're like, this is really strange. I don't understand it. The customs officers, but when you drive up, and it's kind of like a toll booth that you go through and they see all the country stickers on the side. They say to themselves, oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those travelers. You know, OK, now I now I kind of know how to categorize you. And in a lot of ways, it was part of making the trip easier and really engaging people in different places that I went to to meet people and, and um, really have some amazing experiences. You know, it, it's a nice segue into a topic I wanted to ask you about. I'm I'm a little bit introverted and I find myself when I travel finding it sometimes hard to connect with with local people. So one heuristic is ship your Land Cruiser to sh- ship your 22 year old Land Cruiser to, uh, ahead of you. Um, but what else did you learn about how to meet people? Like what what other tricks for how to really get connected to people, interesting people in your job? Yeah, I would say. The number one thing that worked well, and and this is where I have kind of, I'm I'm very, very fortunate that in the roughly two, two and a half decades that I've been investing, I've met a ton of people. And it's been a lot of people from around the world over that timeframe. So it's literally, I mean, it's probably thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people. And these tend to be people that are really, really talented people that I've been fortunate to work with. And I've kept track of where people live and what they're doing, et cetera. So I would reach out to people in each of these cities. And at a high level, when I was setting up this trip, I had a scaffolding, so to speak. So when I decided, okay, I'm going to hit most of Europe, then I said, okay, I think I'm going to take this basic path. And it looks kind of like a figure eight. And I want to hit um, Poland and uh, Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia on my way up to Finland, et cetera. So I could see the cities where I was going to go. And then... I put those into a spreadsheet and I just had a general idea of, okay, I think I'll be in Stockholm, you know, in this five day period, I'm only going to be there one night. It'll be in this five day period. And then I would reach out to people that I knew in my network that were in, in Sweden, et cetera. And I'd say, Hey, I'm coming through in this time frame. Is there anybody interesting that I should meet? Or are you around? And is there anybody interesting I should meet? And what ended up happening is people that, might not be interested in meeting me otherwise. You know, it's like, okay, a VC in town, whatever, that's kind of interesting. But it's a VC in town with his 22-year-old family car and he's driven it through 30 countries. Then you find 
you're able to meet really interesting people because they're like, who's this crazy guy doing this thing? And that's how, for example, a friend introduced me to um, uh, this guy who created the first commercial wingsuit. So if you ever see these like Red Bull jumpers that have the bat suits that they fly with, he lives in Stockholm. He's this Finnish guy, um, Yari. And uh, we ended up just having this really fun dinner, a uh, two hour dinner, you know, and he told me stories about, you know, he's done about uh, 5,000 jumps. And I asked him, hey, do people always listen to your advice? Because he actually coaches people on how to use these wingsuits and how to jump off of high structures and out of planes and stuff like that. And he says with this really, really thick Finnish accent, um, when they don't take my advice, they often die. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I was like, hey, have you yeah. seen people that die? And he goes, unfortunately, yes, I have, I have seen people die. And usually it's when they don't take my advice. So there's just been like, there were just all these really interesting experiences. And going back to your question about how would you meet the people? A lot of it was following up with people. And then because I started to post on Instagram and Facebook, my networks, people would see, oh, are you going here? Are you going there? You should meet this person. So it was kind of by sharing part of what I was doing with the trip and where I was, it gave people the opportunity to make suggestions, like really, really nice suggestions, interesting people to meet, places to see. I had another experience where I had posted on a Land Cruiser forum, and there was a Norwegian that lived along the path that I was taking, uh, headed south of Tromso, and he operates this water-powered sawmill. It's one of three remaining water-powered sawmills. It's been operating for 300 or 400 years. And he sent me a message on Instagram. And he's like, hey, you should stop by. I love Land Cruisers. And I looked at the map and it was only a a 10-minute detour off the road that I was taking already and ended up getting this two-hour tour of an antique water-powered sawmill with a local. And it's the kind of experience that you would never have any other way. And, um, you know, the other thing I would, I would point out about the trip is on one hand, it would have been great to have somebody help me set it up. Uh, but in the setting it up and in talking to people and doing it all yourself, then I learned a lot more and actually had the opportunity, uh, for people to just reach out to me directly and say, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Which was part of what made it such a, a a unique experience. If you're just joining me, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and today I'm joined by my fellow Launchpad co-host, Rob Conybeer. Uh, Rob, I, you know, this re- tees up for me an interesting question, which is the tension between uh, loose and tight schedules. So get, you, you described a model where you had a basic scaffold, um, but, but give me a sense of, of just how tightly this thing was planned and maybe, and maybe what the implications are for life, you know, for work life. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was the first time that I've ever bought a one-way ticket to Europe. So at the beginning of it, I didn't know exactly which day I was coming back. I just yeah. knew that there's a date that I need to get back for my middle daughter's college graduation. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much all I knew. Mm-hmm. So When I went over, it was, okay, the car is going to arrive on, I believe it was like June 8th, June 7th, June 8th, or not June, excuse me, March, Yeah, back in March. And I'm going to fly into Frankfurt and get the car out of customs and all the paperwork that I need to get the car. And then at that point, I actually didn't know exactly where I was going to go. All I really knew was I'm headed down to Tunisia. I'm going to drive down through the European countries to get there. And I'm going to figure out which car ferry gets me down there. And there was a specific person that I was planning to meet down there. And then that person said, oh, there's this other event, entrepreneurs event. If you came a couple of days earlier, you would be able to meet probably about 50 people that are going to be flying into Tunis from all over Europe, the Middle East and Africa with this entrepreneurs organization called Endeavor. So going back to your question of like, how tightly do you schedule stuff versus how loose do you schedule stuff? There's, there's definitely this thing where I've always thought about 
if you want to cross the road, at some point you have to step off the sidewalk into traffic. And maybe it's like the old game Frogger that some of our listeners might be familiar with and other people aren't as familiar with, but you do have to take that first step. And that was, you know, it was really at the point when I started to tell people I'm doing this and I booked the transport for the car and I did the transport for the car before I figured out my airline ticket that it was like, okay, I have to do this. I'm committed to do this. And it wasn't until I was at the airport and I knew it was actually happening. Cause remember it was in the days of when people were still wondering about the pandemic and I could be able to get out, et cetera, that I sent that autoresponder that you mentioned. It's kind of that autoresponder that I think we all dream of sending out someday saying, um, I may not get back to you for three months. Um, it was kind of inspired to do that. And then that became the trigger for people. I had, I had probably about a dozen people reached out to me and they said, please, please, please blog about the trip, write about the trip, post pictures, let me know what's going on. And I really didn't plan to do this publicly upfront, but it was really this emergent thing based on the reaction of friends, et cetera, that they wanted to follow it. And if I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as interesting a trip because of all the recommendations and connections that came out of me posting to, you know, to, to a network of hundreds of people that are kind of the closer friends that would then make recommendations on unique, crazy things to do. Yeah. So, so, so again, going back to the tighter versus looser, I think you kind of, there, you, you have to have time where you can decide, okay, I'm going to stay an extra day somewhere. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you don't have any plan, nobody can make any suggestions because they don't have context either. And I think in life, like when you think about business, for example, um, you know, at some point you become too busy and it's really hard to be open to new opportunities if you don't have time in any given day or any given week to basically drop everything else and focus on that very unique opportunity. And that happens over and over and over again. I know with some of the most interesting um, deals that I've, I've been fortunate enough to invest in, they often come up at the last minute. And you have to be able to drop everything or have time to be able to process it and pursue that opportunity. Yeah. So actually it's, it's pretty interesting. So I would pull out three things you said. Uh, One is a commitment mechanism. So something that commits you to get started and that, that for you was booking the car and telling your friends and sending the autoresponder. And then, and then the second is, you knew you wanted to get to Tunisia. So you had a basic vector. I want to, I want to eventually end up there. And then the third was leave enough slack that, that you can discover, take advantage of the most interesting opportunities that arise that it, that in this kind of environment are going to be completely unpredictable. And yeah. So, yeah. And I guess a fourth principle here would be make your needs maybe make, make the journey visible to allow for the crowd, the, you know, others to help you in terms of suggestions and, and input. And, and those would be pretty good heuristics for lots of kinds of professional activities, especially those like venture capital, where it's fundamentally about discovery. Uh, so pretty cool. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting because on one hand, you have to plan, you have to put the scaffolding together, but at the same time, um, you have to avoid committing to stuff. And that's, for me, in some ways, that was the most difficult thing, you know, to tell people like, okay, I'm going to be there in this three or four day period. And sometimes something would be so compelling that the only way for it to work is you'd have to commit to a specific date. And I did do that a couple of times in the trip. But at other times, like uh, karaoke night in the town of Salah in northern Finland, deep in a reindeer territory, <laughs> where all the locals just kept flooding in until about one or two in the morning and it's still bright as day outside. You can't use it getting dark as a, you know, a hint to go home from karaoke night. You can't plan that. You have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And there's tons of experiences like that. And very, very clear analogies for life and business and other things as well. Yeah. Su- super cool. Well, um, Rob, I think we ought to take a, a short break. We got we got the full hour, so we're gonna we're gonna take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we're gonna continue the conversation. Uh, I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm 
the host of Launchpad on Business Radio Series XM 132. And I'm speaking with my co-host, Rob Connie Beer, who's co-founder of Shasta Ventures and a 24-year veteran of the venture capital. Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich, and I'm thrilled to continue my conversation with my fellow Launchpad co-host, Rob Conybeer, who just took a three-month sabbatical in Europe. So, Rob, I'm going to point our listeners again to your Instagram. It's at the clutch pedal, and there's some fantastic photos for those of you who want to see the visual aspects of this conversation. So, we we talked just in general terms about the the trip. You said you visited 32 countries over 92 days over and drove 19,000 miles. Tell us a little bit more about the itinerary. Uh, I think some of us who think of ourselves as well traveled have been to you know we think of Europe as London and Paris and maybe we get to Berlin, Barcelona, and Rome. But there's a lot more to Europe than that. So tell us where, what countries you, you visited and maybe what some of the most interesting spots were. Yeah, so I, I hit most of the countries in Europe, as you might imagine. I did miss Liechtenstein and I did miss Monaco, uh, but did find some of the uh, get into some of the smaller countries and territories like Gibraltar and Andorra and Luxembourg. Made it down to North Africa, Tunisia, uh, made it all the way across Europe, down through Romania and Bulgaria into Turkey. And then when I got to Istanbul, ended up heading about another 12 hours east on highways and made it over to the eastern part of Turkey through Cappadocia. And then from Cappadocia, drove all the way back through the Balkans, up through Italy and Austria, through Spain and Portugal, then made it down to the bottom of of Spain, which is about as far south as you can drive in Europe, then worked my way north and it turns out there are a ton of car ferries in Europe. So I was able to take a car ferry from Bilbao, which is on the northern coast of Spain, directly to Portsmouth, which is outside of London. Wow. Stayed in London and drove up to the top of Scotland, up to Applecross Pass and Isle of Skye, and took a ferry over to Northern Ireland, then into Ireland, then took a ferry back to France, worked my way across the continent over to Poland and then up to Estonia, took a ferry to Finland and then up to the top of Norway, came down along Norway, back into Sweden, Denmark, and then worked my way back down to Amsterdam where I dropped off the car. Wow. That's, that's, that's quite the trip. 19,000 miles. I guess that's about halfway around the world, right? Yeah. And I'd say one of the things that's interesting is a lot of people look at that and they say, Hey, couple things, Rob. Um, and I think I addressed the first one. They're like, Rob, I don't know if you know this, but you can rent cars in Europe. You don't need to bring your own car. And that's true to a point, but it turns out that a lot of these borders, if you don't own the car and you don't have your name on the title at the moment that you go across the border, you're not going to be able to get your car across. So the actual itinerary I took, it's unlikely that I could have done that with a rental car because I would have to be able to get permission to take that rental car into places like Tunisia and Turkey and other areas where people don't want the rental cars to be going maybe in or outside the EU. I was going to actually make a different snarky comment, which was you could have bought a new Land Cruiser. Land Cruiser <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is true. I, I, I prefer to think of it more as an artistic statement than, than anything else. Um, but <laughs> the other thing that people ask about is, uh, Rob, I don't know if you know this, but you could they have trains that go between these places and planes and you can do it. But the reality is when you take a plane, all you're really doing is looking down at this enormous 3D map. You have no sense for the places you're going through. Maybe you see hills, maybe you see clouds. And then with a train, you're just in a box and you just see in a picture window the world going by. And train tracks tend to be something that people hide from. They don't like train noise. But when you drive along a road, you basically have this, this canopy in front of you and you have this 360 degree view and you can really see what's going on. You can see a landscape ahead of you. And when you see something, you can say, you know what, I'm going to just drive over there or I'm going to go into this town or that looks interesting and you can go do it. You can just decide to get off the highway and, and take a break and maybe go see um, a restaurant and, one of the things that you can do when you're driving versus uh, a plane or a train is 
say you're driving through a remote area and you see a ton of cars at a roadside diner, the number one tip I have for people is to stop at that diner. Yeah. That was some of the most amazing food, whether I was in Poland or Sweden or Turkey. And often when you turn in, you would just see all local license plates and it was clearly locals. And that would be the number one way to find like some sort of really surprising experience is something that was just really busy like that. The other thing that happens is when you think about commerce in the world or how people get around, the road is something that is accessible to just about everything Mm -hmm. because it's the last mile. So even when you go from a train station to something else, maybe you walk if you're in a city, but if you're in the country to get to the train station, you still have to take a road. So if you really want to see what's happening in a place, you really have to, you have to drive through it. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So talk a little bit about what you learned at this, at this local level. So give us some insights. I'm, I'm not going to direct it too much because I'm curious. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'd say that, that it, it took me a while on the trip to really start to gain any insights other than maybe I'm tired and Europe is big. Like that was the number one thing I hit. It hit me early on is I think, especially for Americans, you take a look at a map of Europe and it looks like Europe is about the size of Texas with a bunch of counties that you can go visit. And because people fly from place to place, you were talking about like Rome, Barcelona, Paris, et cetera. People look at Europe and they think, oh, wow, you know, Europe, there's like five languages there. French, German, Italian, Spanish and British. Okay, so, you know, those are the five languages and nobody thinks about the other languages. But when you drive through these places and you go to gas station to gas station, everybody calls gasoline and diesel something different. You know, they call it like gazole or they call it benzene or they call it sans plomb. And sometimes they would use the color that was meant to clearly demarcate diesel. They would use it on gasoline and vice versa. So every time I went into a gas station, I avoided looking at the price because that would just make me depressed. But I went out of my way to make damn sure I didn't pump diesel into my gasoline powered car. So the reason I mention this is because... About 80% of the way through the trip, I had this, this realization that the European Union, the EU, is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle that it exists. And I think that one of the, the beliefs people have about Europeans is, well, a lot of Europeans speak, you know, two to five languages. So when they travel around, they're able to communicate. You know, it's a, kind of a natural thing. But what I started to realize was in talking to people in each of these countries and asking them where they went, you know, a lot of Norwegians or a lot of Germans or a lot of Italians or a lot of Spanish, they might've only been to four or five other European countries. And in fact, the vast majority of them haven't traveled like that. And often when they go to one of these countries, they're just like an American, you know, they, they don't speak the local language. And as a result, what you'd start to see is you'd see billboards in different places And the language you would see the billboard in, if it was a vacation destination, was often an indication of where did the the tourists or the people come to visit from. So you talk to people in Norway and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I love going down to, you know, Ibiza or, you know, southern coast of Spain, et cetera. That's where I love to go. And then you start to realize they haven't been to a lot of these places. And then you also start to realize it's not five languages. It's actually 30, 40, 50 languages. And then there's all the local dialects. So the fact that you can drive through the Schengen area of the EU, which is where you can go without border guards, border crossings, there's just a sign that marks the country that you're going into. It it really is an absolute miracle. And, you know, I, I could spend an hour talking about kind of why it's happened or it hasn't happened, but I think a big part of it is Europeans got tired of war and, you know, having economic cooperation and having a trading partner is, I think, one of the biggest ways to prevent to prevent war. So when you look at all the different cultures and when you take a look at um, all these pieces to have a common economic area where you can just drive from country to country. And I saw this contrast because I drive into Turkey or out of Turkey and you would see a line for the trucks to go through customs. It would literally be 20 to 40 hours long for the trucks waiting at, at the border to go across. So for me, it, it really is a modern miracle. The yeah. Ama- amazing. 
Um, you know, we, of course, as Americans are, are super lucky in that English is sort of the default in most of the world. Um, I mean, amazing and a, a real privilege. What, what was your sense of people's perceptions of Americans? So, so you were, you were in the Islamic world, you're in, you know, the Protestant Catholic all over these diff- different cultures and ethnicities all over Europe. And it sounds like a little bit in Africa and maybe even a little bit technically in Asia. So what, what were the perceptions what what did you how did you feel as an American? Yeah, I, I would say there's the experience that plenty of people have had on their, you know, when you take the European vacation, you know, whether you've done it once in your life or whether you've done it each summer, when you're going to the major cities, I think there are so many tourists coming through that they they kind of get fed up with the tourists sometimes. Yeah. But with a lot of the places that I go to that were off the beaten path, there were two dynamics that happened. One is, you know, I, I was I was very welcomed in the places where I went. And, and that was very surprising to me. And I think some of it is because of the pandemic, there haven't been a lot of tourists in these places literally for years. So when you're going to, you know, what's this enormous Roman Colosseum in the town of Elham in southern Tunisia, and you show up, they literally probably haven't seen Americans for a few years. Yeah. So oddly, they're happy to see it. Um, so I actually found it to be very welcoming. It was something that was in the back of my mind that I was worried about. I'm driving around with Washington state plates right. on my car. Is that going to stick out? And knock on wood, I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised at how that was just an icebreaker over and over and over again with people being very friendly. And I don't know if maybe it was just the fact that they hadn't seen an American doing something ridiculous like this before. So it was interesting just because it was so unusual. Yeah. Jeez. It sure makes you wonder how much conflict there would be if we all did a little more of that traveling. Well, one, one thing, by the way, I, I, I came across somebody who had done the reverse of my trip. So instead of me taking us plates, driving around Europe and North Africa and um, a tiny bit of Asia who had taken his car from Germany and drove it around the Southeastern U S. Wow. I only got pulled over once in my three months and 19,000 miles there. This guy doing the reverse with his German plates in Southeastern U S he got pulled over on average once a day. And a lot of people, like there were times when he was worried about his car being impounded. So I was very pleasantly surprised at how positively um, received the car was in these countries. Wow. So let's actually, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Series 6M132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with my co-host, Rob Connybeer, about his sabbatical in Europe. Uh, Rob, uh, talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So you went... I mean, this trip was for fun and and to relax. But you, being the 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 organized type A person you are, you couldn't help uh, but but mix in some professional activities. Uh, talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. What you what you learned? Yeah. So in a lot of the the cities that I went to in um, Sofia in Bulgaria, in Istanbul in Turkey, in Madrid in um, Spain. And uh, also in Tallinn, in Estonia, probably about 10 different times, I went to dinners that some people organized with people from the local entrepreneurial community, people doing companies that were at various stages of formation, anywhere from, say, two people in the company just getting started to people running companies that might have hundreds of people in it and scaling and well-funded. And for everything that I said about the European Union being a miracle, the biggest challenge is for starting companies over there, and I would hear this over and over and over again, is finding a scalable market opportunity because in the U.S., we're very, very fortunate to have a domestic market that's a wealthy market on average. I mean, if you take a look at the GDP per capita, you know, highest or one of the highest in the world and a common market where the culture is remarkably similar around the US. So you have a domestic market of over 300 million people. Now, 
every time that I would talk to the entrepreneurs, say in Spain or in Turkey or in Bulgaria, they would have the frustration of, okay, we have a great product and a great fit to Spanish speaking people in Spain, but that market would be only maybe a 10th of the size of the U.S., And then to expand, it would seem natural that they would go to France or you go to another adjacent country. But the culture and the tastes and the language could be completely different. So the product offering that you have might not uh, match that well. The EU helps with a lot of the trade stuff. But if you're in a country that's outside of Schengen or you're in a country like Turkey, then you start to have um, different regulatory issues in, in these different places. And the other thing that I would hear over and over again in a lot of the EU countries is the difficulty in firing people. Hmm. And as a result, it means that the startups end up uh, not being anywhere near as efficient as they'd like to be at times and taking longer and being a lot higher, harder to hire people because you wouldn't want to hire somebody that you wouldn't be able to let go if they're not the right fit. Yeah, I suppose that's the downside of the social safety net makes it a little bit less flexible uh, for the for the new entrants for sure. Yeah. Well, anything you observed where you'd say, wow, that that's really cool what they're doing uh, in Europe. We need to figure out how to do that and replicate that in 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 Seattle or, or Silicon Valley. Well, it's funny. Um, one of the things I saw everywhere is the. Um, Boy, I wish they would have the really nice rest areas that they have in Europe. And you would find it in every single country. And I mean, this will sound really silly, but to, to charge somebody like 50 cents to use the restroom goes a long ways. Mm-hmm. And for people that haven't experienced this, basically what you go is you have, you go into a, a rest stop or a rest area or a gas station, you go to the bathroom and they have a turnstile and you need to put 50 cents in, you know, half a euro into it. And then you put the 50 cents in and then you get a little voucher and then you use the restroom and the restrooms are super clean because they actually have money to keep them clean, but you get a voucher for the amount of what you spend to go to the restroom. So you you can go back into the, um, into the shop and you could buy yourself a Red Bull or something. So it ends up being a coupon, but it's a way to make sure that when somebody uses the restroom, they're actually a, a customer. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's a little thing. I know you're looking for, you know, something that's deeper there. One thing that I also saw a lot of is the um, the uh, fast food kiosks were everywhere. So those are coming to the U.S. and they've been growing in the U.S., but it's something that was pretty universal over there. And I suspect that it may have been adopted in Europe faster because of the labor regulations. It's a way to not worry about hiring people that you can't you can't let go. All right. Well, I got to ask you about on that subject on the, the sketchiest food item I saw in your Instagram feed was a roller dog. Uh, (laughs) Tell us what what a roller dog is and how it's dispensed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. They, they have, they're the same roller dogs in the U S you see at a seven 11. So, you know how you see the, the heater and they have the rolls with the hot dogs on them. And they'd have different types. So you might have like, um, you know, you, you, you'd have uh, different types of hot dogs or sausage, et cetera, rolling. But instead of having a bun that's cut lengthwise yeah. where it, it, it breaks into and you put the hot dog inside, they actually have some sort of bread or pastry that looks like a tube. Right. And they just... Um, they put the hot dog in the tube and there is no opening other than the two ends of the tube. And I saw it everywhere and I saw people ordering them. And I personally would never buy a hot dog from a 7-Eleven, but I had never seen this packaging and I saw so many people eating them that I, I felt like I needed to try one. It was yeah. definitely sketchy. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect your Instagram followers jumped by several hundred as a result of that post because it had a lot of engagement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It was also, it was, uh, yeah, it looked a little bit like a double entendre if you look at it as yes. well. Yes. So, yes. Uh, got that. Um, all right. So a cu- couple, couple questions. If we, now you've returned home, you've been home a, a couple of weeks. What, what's, what, are there any persistent habits or life hacks that have come, you brought home from the road? Yeah, I, I would say that the biggest thing 
that I was, I was, um, that I did was I'm not feeling a need to respond to every single email mm-hmm. and my ability to just quickly respond to email because when I was on the road, I had to, I, I was still checking my email, but I wasn't responding. So on a day, a typical day pre-sabbatical, I'd probably respond to like real responses, not just spam that you're going through, probably 20, 30 emails a day. And while I was on the sabbatical, it was probably like one or two emails a day. Mm -hmm. So I would look at everything very quickly and see, okay, is this something that's work-related that is urgent and I need to take care of? But now that I've come back, I'm, I'm somewhere in between and I'm not... I'm not blowing a lot of stuff off that I know is important, but I'm on my sabbatical. Like I'll, I'll handle that. But I've also started to realize things that just aren't important in the email inbox and getting a lot better at just, you know, quickly disposing of them or, or moving on and prioritizing. Yeah. What, what about in terms of, the way you've scheduled your day. I mean, I know you're, you're still thinking about what's next and you know, what what your next big, big project is, but in terms of how you've structured your day, have you left more slack deliberately? You know, I think the the biggest thing is I'm not checking the news all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to feel like that's one of the first things I need to do when I wake up in the morning. And I found that I would go for days at a time without checking the news. And yeah. it was really more looking at a map and figuring out where do I want to go and how does this fit into me getting to Amsterdam in time to drop off my car and get to a college graduation. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it was like a very regular routine. It was wake up in the morning. Do I know where I'm staying tonight? No. At breakfast, I would figure out, okay, what hotel am I going to stay at tonight and what town am I, I going to get to? And really simplifying my routine and, and focusing is one of the things that I've found afterwards. It's, 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 it's changed me a lot in that regard and focusing on things that are important versus things that are simply not important. Yeah. Related question is how you used those 19,000 miles uh, in the car. So I know, I know you had some travel campaigns occasionally. Um, How much of that was, was just windshield time, just you with your mind wandering versus a podcast or music or something else. Yeah, it was, I did all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I would say in relatively equal measure, uh, I listened to a book that uh, a friend of mine, uh, Victor Prince uh, wrote called the Camino way uh, during the trip. Cause when I saw him, he's like, have you read my book? I was embarrassed to say I hadn't. And then I listened to it afterwards and then I talked to him about it uh, afterwards. So that was about two days of driving to, to listen to the book. I bet he um, walked though. Pardon? I yes. He, he walked, walked the entire thing. Yeah. For people that don't know the Camino way, it's this pilgrimage route that's been around for hundreds of years through Northern Spain. And, um, what I would find each day, the basic ritual was wake up, figure out if I knew where I was going that night and then figure that out. And then I get in the car and I just start to drive and look around, no music, nothing, just kind of waking up and observing. And then later in the day would turn on music or would start listening to a podcast. And I'd say if it was a particularly boring drive, then I would listen to a podcast. Yeah. Like if I'm just driving straight through the desert, yeah. podcast. Uh, when things started to happen or there was a lot of traffic, then I might listen to music. And one of the things that has surprised me, and it's probably just the way that the brain works. I remember, like, if I listen to some songs now, I remember where I was driving when I listened to that. So for example, when I made it to the top of Norway at two in the morning and the sun was above the horizon due North, I still remember, you know, the music playing when, when, when I arrived and the other thing that I, that I actually wish I did a bit more of is the road trip companion piece is amazing. Hmm. And I had about, I'd say five or six different road trip companions. One was a friend from business school who lives in Beirut and he flew to Rome and we spent four days driving to Istanbul and I dropped him off at the Istanbul airport. Uh, another one, which was amazing, was uh, a conference organizer 
based in Helsinki, uh, invited me to visit his family cottage about five hours north of Helsinki to do the full on weekend in kind of the cottage country up there. And uh, his name is Jana Mary. And he goes, hey, Rob, um, by the way, do you mind if my mom joins us? And (laughs) and I met him in downtown Helsinki at his at the incubator where he works out of. And he got in the car and then he gave me directions to his mom's place. And then his mom was very sweet. And then she wanted to show me the entire house and got a tour of the house. And she was the most amazing road trip companion in the backseat. And we had this great conversation for five hours as we drove up to their weekend cottage. Wow. That, that's amazing. I, man, I'm risk averse. Uh, I'm not sure I could do that, but it sounds like it worked out really well. So congratulations on, on that. All right. So we just have about a minute left. Uh, tell us news, you know, not all of us can take three months and do this, this kind of trip. Is, is there something you could do in a week? Uh, what would you advise? How can we get oh, a, t- a taste? I, I would say the number one thing is, you know, when, when people say, I always wish I could do that, you, you can still do a smaller piece of it, or you can, yeah. you can build to it over time. It doesn't just happen. It's not something that you just happen to do. But if you like the idea of going to the south of France or you like the idea of going somewhere uh, in the U.S., et cetera, just schedule it. That's the number one thing. And yeah. most people step off the curb, as you said, yes, step, step off the curb and just yeah. do it and yeah. commit yourself to it, as you were pointing out before. All right, Rob. Well, remarkably, we're out of time. That is a fascinating story. And so thanks so much for taking the time to, to share it with us. Thanks, Carl. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Once again, you can check out Rob's entire journey at his Instagram account at the clutch pedal. That's all for today. If you missed any of the last hour, feel free to check it out on the SiriusXM app and be sure to follow our channel on Twitter at SXM business to follow me, go to my website, ktulrich.com. That's K-T-U-L-R-I-C-H or follow me on Twitter at ktulrich. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132.